Hi, this is a quick cold open for the Dara Sisters podcast. We know, guys, we know it's been like two weeks since we uploaded a episode and we're very sorry. Life kind of hit us both, uh, as I'm going to mention in a second in the podcast. I just moved across the country, which took a long time because I had to drive with my husband and Rihanna was on a lot of vacations. So we expected to get this podcast out sooner and we did not. So we want to apologize and as a gift to you we are giving you this very long and juicy episode about the next generation villain so i hope you enjoy we are hoping to stay on schedule after this and have weekly episodes but life happens and i just want to send my love to everybody out there and i just want to encourage you to get vaccinated all right now on to the pod sir we've had a little problem these two women are just arriving they Objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Bator of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. These fucking upstairs neighbors. And I'm Rihanna. <laughs> and I'm Rihanna. Today we are here to talk about the villains in Star Trek The Next Generation. This is a big one, folks, so strap in. This is the introduction of some of the most notorious and famous and evilest villains. Is evilist a word? <laughs> no, I would say uh, malevolent villains, mm, maybe. They're vile. They're the worst. <laughs> yeah, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so these villains in The Next Generation are just so different from TOS. Of course, the original series is TOS. Just for first-time listeners of the podcast, anyone... <laughs> anyone jumping into the next generation i guess yeah yeah yeah. i just want to help everyone out but so i'm really excited to get into the nitty-gritty and talk about how different all these episodes are and how the villains are structured within these episodes but before that i want to say that we are probably going to have another week off after this podcast because i am moving to virginia my husband is now back from the air force basic training which i've been like waiting for 55 days so Uh i'm very (laughs) very happy that he is home and we only have 10 days to make our way to virginia and find a house because we're buying a house so um (laughs) it's a little bit crazy right now but we are still committed to the pod and we are still very excited to talk about these episodes but you're gonna have to have a little bit of patience and we're probably gonna be releasing bi-weekly episodes for a little bit um so i just wanted to give you a heads up right away yeah but the DS9 episode in a couple weeks will still be fantastic, and it's going to be a lot of material to cover. I feel like it's kind of nice that we're taking a break because then you can all get emotionally ready to talk about Deep Space Nine and just the absolute powerhouse of villains that we're going to be discussing. Yeah, and you can take that time to catch up with episodes on our Patreon because we have 
the whole season one of Lower Decks out. We have reviewed every single episode. Also, we are working our way through the animated series. So you need to go catch up, okay? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I also want to say that I am visiting our lovely Moogie, who is on the podcast this coming week. So I'm very excited to see my mom and my stepdad again soon. And Ashlyn was actually lucky enough to watch all of these episodes, these TNG villain episodes with our mom. Yes, it was really amazing because Next Generation is really the only series she hasn't watched all the way through. And so it was lovely to get her live reactions about Q shenanigans and everything. <laughs> and I actually wrote down at least one quote that she said while we were watching. So I hope I get to share that with you today. <laughs> Wonderful. I can't wait to hear it. Real quick, what was her overall consensus of the Next Generation villains? Well, she has seen Voyager before, and so, of course, she knows about the Borg, and she thought it was awesome to get to see their introduction, and she thought all those episodes were fantastic. Similarly, with the Cardassians, you know, we're going to talk about the chain of command at the end of the episode today. She thought it was really interesting to see the Cardassians before the war, which, of course, she's very familiar with in DS9. Right. So, yeah, this was a lot of, like, prequel villains for her, and she already knows Q from Voyager, so... That's true. Um, yeah, so she really enjoyed watching these episodes. It was a blast. I'm so glad you got to do that. That sounds really fun. <laughs> it was lovely. So, Rihanna, I'm curious. We're going down to business now. We're going to talk about these villains. So, who would you run away with in any villain in the next generation if you got to turn evil yourself and run away with someone who would it be you know i pondered this a little because a lot of the next generation villains are a lot and <laughs> not anyone i would want to run away with <laughs> um like i'm not gonna like go with the skin of evil guy like come oh, on no. <laughs> he's just goo <laughs> He's lonely. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I would have to say the Dura sisters. And I'm a little biased because this is the namesake of our pod. And I have always admired them as villains, as these Klingons who do not necessarily follow Klingon order. They are pushing back against the dumb rules that women can't be on the high council which is completely idiotic especially because discovery laughed in the face of that <laughs> they're just baddies and i love them i think that it would also be fun to just see their banter to tease around with them to fight battles with them i don't know i just i think it would be a blast to hang out with lursa and Mator. so that's my answer i just let's hang out with the dura sisters i would run away with them I love this. I love your answer. I didn't even think about them as one of my options, but of course, I would also run away with you with them. <laughs> We'd be a <laughs> great asked, sister duo. <laughs> We'd be the Duras Quad sisters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'd be like, hello, we named your, our podcast after you. They're like, why? <laughs> they would They would not like us. We would have to really win their respect. I Absolutely. Think. <laughs> We'd have to win some battles for sure. Yes. <laughs> So, Ashlyn, what about you? I'm super curious. Which villain in The Next Generation would you run away with? Oh, definitely Q. I knew I'm, it. Yeah. <laughs> That's very much your vibe. <laughs> well, I mean, we're both obsessed with John Luke, so we would have a lot to talk about. Sure. And, um, and he's kind of like the Doctor, honestly, except way more mischievous and... Yeah, from Doctor villain. Who, I assume, not the Voyager oh. one. <laughs> 
Yeah, he's not like the EMH. He is like the Doctor from Doctor Who, and especially, we're going to talk about this episode soon, where Vosh runs away with Q. Yeah. I, I was like, I didn't even know that was an option. I didn't even know you could run away with Q, and he would have adventures with you. So I would definitely take him up on that opportunity. I want to go see the cosmos and go see some cool stuff around the universe so i'm going with q for sure i mean he says that he'll show her things that no human has ever laid eyes on so that sounds pretty amazing yeah that's exactly why i'm going (laughs) you know i almost said q but then i thought about how annoying it would be to be with q for all like i'd love to explore the galaxy and everything but not with q give me a klingon ship and i'll go with the dura sisters well well and i'm kind of assuming he's gonna dump me off at some planet and forget about me so i just have to make sure that it's a nice planet you know i'm kind of using him as a ride He's your Uber. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's my Cuber. Oh, <laughs> good one. Oh, I, th- I, I preemptively apologize. I thought you were going to groan. <laughs> no, that one got me. Well done. Oh, wow. Um, all right. So let's do it. Let's talk about these evil people. The episodes that we watched to prepare for this podcast was, and I'm going to say in order of I'm just going to say in order of villain, not necessarily episode order. Sure. So here we go. Encounter at Farpoint. Cupid. Deja Q. Q who? All good things. Redemption, part one and two. Chain of Command, part one and two. Best of Both Worlds, part one and two. <laughs> First Contact, the movie. <laughs> Data Lore. Skin of Evil. And ship in a bottle. So as you can tell, our list is a little longer this week than in the original series because obviously this show has four more seasons (laughs) than original series. So we had to really decide what episodes of cues we didn't even do all of cues. I mean, I think we did most of them, but it's really hard to fit in every single Q episode and every single Borg episode and every Dura Sisters and all the lore episodes. So we decided to choose the ones that we thought would best fit these top tier villains and Moriarty. (laughs) Yeah, and Moriarty. Also, so much of Next Generation is is just more complicated than the original series. Uh, A lot of the original series is like, there's an evil guy and he took over the ship and now they got to do something about it. But Next Generation is like, oh, there's like this random energy that made the ship go crazy. And now an enemy jumped out of the ship. You know, like, <laughs> there, There's just like some weird, it's just like complicated, all of these episodes. And so it was a lot less cut and dry when we were just trying to decide who the baddest of the bad <laughs> were for yeah. Next Generation. And I think that the villains that we got are some of the best ones and the most notorious ones. And I also just want to say that these plots are just complicated. Like, we're going to talk about Chain of Command with all the Cardassians. I mean, we had to focus on one villain, but there, there's... Uh, sometimes I think that Jellicoe is a, is a villain. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. So, yeah. So there's so many different facets. People within Starfleet can you know, be evil, but we're just focusing on um, these these villains today who are just fun to hate. Yes. Or, or we we hate them. We hate to hate them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Ashlyn, we decided today that we are going to start off with one of the probably most famous 
characters in all of Star Trek, which is, of course, Q, played by the incredible, incomparable John DeLancey. We first meet Q in the pilot of The Next Generation, and I just want to do a quick shout out and a reminder to go listen to our podcast about the pilot of The Next Generation, which is in our first ever series. That was our second episode ever, so you can hear all of our thoughts if you go listen to that episode. But anyway, we meet Q in this episode. He shows up right away, and we, in the form of like this net where he's trying to trap the Enterprise, the episode goes on and basically he states that humanity is on trial for their savagery. <laughs> yeah, for being a savage barbaric race essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned this when we went over our pilot series and talked about this episode, but I do I do want to bring it up again because I think it's an important factor in Q is that when we first meet him, he acts a lot like an original series villain. He's speaking in sort of high English. He's acting kind of Shakespearean. He's using this sort of Trelane-esque original series vibe. I don't know how else to describe it because he states facts and he's like, I shall judge thee on thine prowess or whatever, you know, and then he's, um, but then he changes it up. And so we think he's just some sort of mysterious old timey figure, but then he changes it up and changes his uniform to have a, I think it's like a a army uniform from around our era. World War Three eugenics war era. Yeah. He changes in that after, I think, but like first he's like wearing a regular like army uniform and Picard calls it a costume and he, and essentially Q is demonstrating how barbaric humanity is with the fact that they start all these wars amongst each other. And it reminded me of the quote that Trelane said in the original series that humans are the best at destroying themselves, essentially. And Q is running along these same lines of saying that humanity is constantly seeking to destroy each other and that's why they are barbaric and savage and Picard is then trying to convince him that this is not the case anymore that humanity has evolved and that understanding that they weren't alone in the universe helped to bring people together Q is not convinced obviously and that's why they're put on trial I mean he freezes a poor little red shirt <laughs> or blue shirt whoever he's, he's a yellow shirt but he essentially is a red shirt yeah <laughs> Richard yeah. at heart, poor guy. Mm-hmm. And he freezes yard, almost kills her. So he's definitely showing how powerful and dangerous he is just by the fact that he has this net that they can't outrun. They're going at like warp nine and they can't outrun this net, <laughs> you know, classic. And Q is essentially giving them a warning to say, you should not be out here exploring or you shall face the consequences. And of course, Picard is not going to stand for that. And so he decides to keep going to Farpoint and pick up Riker and to figure out what's going on with this mystery at Farpoint, which you can listen to our pilot episode to get more into that detail. But yeah, I just find it interesting that Q is appearing as a figure that is uh, intending to judge humanity. And this is the whole his whole premise. The crux of Q is in the fact that he thinks that humans are lesser and like should not be out exploring the galaxy. Okay, I have a couple of questions. Because you say that Q is not convinced about humanity, and obviously that's the face he's trying to put on. But I feel like 
testing the crew of the Enterprise, which is the Federation flagship. It's a galaxy-class ship. It's the best one they have. It's the best crew, best captain. It's the best that the Federation has to offer right now. So he's he's asking the best people to defend humanity. I feel like if Q really wanted humanity to fail, he would go to like a penal colony where everyone was down on their luck and imprisoned and ask them, you know, and, and maybe kind of trick them into get humanity into failing or bring out like the more barbaric natures and people. So I feel like he inherently does like humans. And I think that this directive is actually from the Q, the Q continuum, and not from our good friend Q that we meet in this episode. I also think it's interesting. Well, okay, so I have a, a couple more things and I'll come back to the trial because the trial is so interesting. Um, but I thought it's weird that Q says humanity has gone too far already. And that's why he has that net out. And I'm also... I have so many questions. So um, <laughs> first of all, the Federation is not only human. The Federation is a, I don't want to say collective, I want to start <laughs> borrowing like Borg terms, but it's a combination of thousands of different races and species. And yes, it was started by humanity, but it was also co-signed like with the Andorians and it was uh, like a coalition of people who created the Federation. And so... I think it's just bold of Q to be testing humanity on something that is not solely their creation. Yeah, I wondered about this uh, as well, because obviously the Federation isn't just humans. I'm thinking that humanity, I don't know, I'm kind of hearkening back to Enterprise and the ways that uh, humanity was constantly judged by the Vulcans. And I feel like this is a similar scenario for Q, where he feels like humanity is the species that is doing the worst out of people in the Federation. And so he's going, or the continuum is go, like going harder on them than the other species. Because I don't think you need to test the Vulcans. I think that the Vulcans have maybe a higher regard in the Q continuum. But I think also it does have a, f a factor of it just being Q's interest and his intrigue in humans. And I think you're right, Ashlyn. Uh, what you said about Q is a really important factor is that he doesn't hate humans. He's very intrigued by them. And I think that he tests the Enterprise. He's probably thinking if like the quote-unquote best of humanity can't pass my test, then it's clear that they can't be out here. You know, he's testing the best and he's still assuming they're going to fail because he thinks that he, in the in the continuum thinks that humanity's not ready. And I wonder if that harkens back to a lot of what happened in the original series, a lot of the stuff that went, you know, like with Kirk sort of doing his own thing, sort of running wild sometimes and still, you know, I think Kirk is an amazing captain and everything, but he also caused a lot of damage and I think a lot of Starfleet officers do cause a lot of damage. It uh, unintentionally when they're out exploring. And so I think that the continuum has seen this and sent Q to be this sort of tester. But yeah, Ashlyn, I really like your train of thought and please continue. <laughs> so we are assuming that the continuum sent Q out to go test humanity, probably because of Q's interest in humans. And yet the idea of a trial was actually from Picard. If you watch that trial scene, Picard is, he's basically saying, 
oh, are you gonna like put us on trial for this? Like, are you going to test us in some way, Q? What's going on? And then Q's like, hey, that sounds like a great plan. And so I wonder if this was actually the plan all along with the continuum and Picard just like got the idea and and he was the one who said it, or if actually Q said, oh, this sounds fun. Let's do it because you demand it, Picard. Yeah, I like this idea because I think that the trial itself, Q was just going to call them guilty and be done with it. Essentially, that was sort of his attitude of, I find you to be guilty of being a savage race, essentially. Mm -hmm. And Picard says, then test us. Like, he's saying pretty much what I was saying earlier, that we are humanity's best and brightest. So test us and see how we fair in this situation and see how we come out based on your other standards and one thing i want to add too is it's interesting that q chose a court from 2079 and data says that courts were trying people for the mistakes of their forebearers which i think is a very interesting fact and that of course q chose that because he is seeing humanity as a non-linear sort of you guys are savage then you're you're savage now kind of thing and maybe not seeing the progress that they've made and this is what picard is trying to instill in him and say that test us now instead of for what we were doing in the 1940s or during the eugenics wars all of that or during this era (laughs) during the uh, bell riot era you know all of those things Yeah, I totally agree. And this trial, the format and the people there will come back in the finale. Yeah. So it, yeah, it is interesting. And I also just want to say that Q's entrance into this trial scene is fantastic and just says everything about who Q is as a character because he comes in flying on this throne and he's got the whole judge outfit on. He has gloves on. He looks fantastic. And I think this really sets the precedent for how... Q sees himself and how he wants us to see him is this high and mighty godlike being who is here to strike judgment. And yeah. Picard calls it out. He says, you are a self-righteous life form, quick to prosecute and judge any life form that they come across. Yeah. I, I love Picard. <laughs> so good. Yeah. That's such a good quote. Yeah. So what he does at the end of the trial is he says, I'll give you 12 hours to prove yourself. And then he gives this whole mystery for the crew to find and figure out what's going on. And, you know, there's a alien. The 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 station is an alien. Space jellyfish, the-, <laughs> the usual. Yeah. yeah, that's the answer to the mystery. And they do end up solving it in time. I think it was like kind of right on the border because Q shows up again at the end of the episode to give them some hints. And throughout, he's he's definitely helping the crew because he keeps appearing to ask very pointed questions to Picard like oh well why is that guy acting suspiciously you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that honestly Q is bored and he's very intrigued by Picard particularly and by the crew as a whole and this is why he keeps coming back to them. He's like, oh, I'll keep an eye on you. But essentially, he's like, wow, th- these might be fun people to play with and mess around with. I think that I'm going to keep coming back. Yeah, that that's exactly it. We absolutely see him over and over again. And the next episode that we see him in is Q-Who. <laughs> Who? Still, in, still in season one, right? Yeah, this yeah. is early days q um, there's an episode b- 
before no season two actually is when oh, q season who two. got you got you but there is an episode before this we didn't talk about where q asked Riker to join the continuum we were like nah that's okay we don't need because Riker refuses obviously <laughs> um yeah. but so then the next time we see him is in q who which is where q sends them he so again q is running along this narrative that humanity is not ready to be exploring the the cosmos essentially and he gives them a quote a preview of what's to come and essentially flings them into the far reaches of space i don't know what quadrant he sends them into but uh whatever quadrant they're in the borg are there as well I'm assuming it's the Beta Quadrant, but only because Guinan, I think, is from the Beta Quadrant. Yeah. But I don't know if that's ever said or if I'm just thinking that it was. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) This is a great episode, and we actually get to overlap our villains in this conversation because (laughs) he introduces them to the Borg for the first time. And we also get to see a great rivalry spring up between Q and Guinan, and we find out that they actually know each other, which is really cool. And especially because Q has been set up so far in the series as a villain, as a annoyance and rival to Picard. And so the fact that Guinan confirms all of that, because we, we've only known Q collectively for like, what like two hours total yeah because he keeps just (laughs) popping around and so the fact that Guinan sees him is instantly like oh yeah this is bad news I think is really helpful for Picard (laughs) to confirm his suspicions about Q and we have someone who has more knowledge about his background who can help to understand why Q is even doing any of this absolutely Guinan gives them some information on the Borg, but she's obviously reluctant to talk about it because the Borg destroyed her people. And she, I think, is one of the um, only survivors of this attack, or at least that we know of. We don't know how many of her people escaped from the Borg. And so she, of course, is furious that Q has introduced the crew of the Enterprise to the Borg because they are so clearly out of their depth. And this is something that I was really curious about watching this episode seeing them interact with the borg they're trying to hail them they're trying to communicate they're chatting you know and they're like oh let's let's see if they're friendly kind of thing and it's this big cube and of course i'm screaming at the tv i'm saying run away at high warp like you need to get the heck out of here but obviously the enterprise has encountered quite a few species at this point in season two they have a bit of time under their belt and so they think okay this is just another mission that we have to complete and something else that we have to something new we have to discover and it's just so much more dangerous than that that it's just harrowing to watch this episode knowing how dangerous the Borg are and seeing them kind of underestimate the Borg in the beginning and everything I'm like no do not stay by that cube do not do this you need to get the heck out of here right now Gaiden also it just breaks my heart too because Guinan thinks that she escaped the Borg and then she has to see them again and she has to come to terms with the fact that she might die by the hands of the Borg after thinking she was rid of them forever because the Borg have not come to the Alpha Quadrant they have not entered into the space that the uh, Enterprise is in and so to see them again must be a horrible traumatic experience for Guinan and I really like the depth that we get to her character in this episode because she does have this combative attitude with Q which is so fun to watch and to see her 
just completely, of course, just livid at Q, of course, for bringing them here and almost paralyzed by the Borg, you know? And I think it shows the extent of the danger here. It shows a hint of it. Not not enough that new watchers could really understand, but just enough to give people a warning that, oh, if Guinan's freaked out by this, like, this is probably something bigger than we realize. I remember so long ago, the first time I saw The Next Generation with Rihanna, we were both in middle school, and... I remember thinking that the atmosphere of tension in this episode was so good because you are experiencing these emotions right along with the Enterprise crew where you don't trust Q, you trust Guinan, but you're wondering why she's not filling in all the details. And it's just an aura of mystery. And you're trying to figure out why is, why is everyone so scared of these guys? And so I thought it was really bold, but really terrifying in hindsight, knowing who the Borg are. I can't believe that they beamed onto the cube. I like, I- Unbelievable. I cannot deal with so that. So reckless. And actually mom said, Moogie, <laughs> during this scene, she said, um, they need the Hansen's uh, technology so they can be shielded <laughs> if they beam <laughs> over there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which is a Voyager reference, actually, where uh, uh, Seven of Nine's parents were studying the Borg and they had shields on so they wouldn't get assimilated while they were doing their studies. But yeah. anyway, I thought that was funny. Um I also think, so I just want to talk about Q's decision to do this, and I know he's trying to prove to Picard and to the Q continuum that humanity sucks and they're not ready to be exploring this far out, but he, I think, does irreparable damage to the Federation because he exposes them so early to the Borg, maybe a hundred years early to the Borg. I mean, we don't know how far they would have traveled to eventually reach the Alpha Quadrant, but uh, it is terrifying to me that Q introduces them at this time. And also, 18 people on the Enterprise die, and Q doesn't care. And Picard is saying, like, you lost 18 lives. Why did you bring us out this far? And Q just waves it away and says, oh, it's just part of exploring. Like, they're just, it's fine. You know, it's, you have to expect to lose them. And this is just another reminder that Q is a villain. Like, as much as we like him sometimes and as funny as he is, he is not in this for saving everybody and having a happy tune at the end of the episode he is about causing chaos and picard does picard calls it out he says q is next of kin to chaos which i love that that's such a good quote yeah yeah ashlyn i think this is a really important point is that q is explaining to the enterprise how they're not ready to be exploring out this far then don't send them out that far this is the the crux of the problem is that he's saying, oh, you're not ready for this when, yeah, that's correct. I absolutely agree. They're not ready to, to deal with the Borg and no one has the capabilities yet to deal with them. And this is what causes so many deaths and the events of first contact and everything that we're going to see when we talk about the Borg. But I think that Q is sort of digging himself into a deeper hole here because obviously you can't assume that people are going to be ready for a sector of space that they haven't even learned anything about. They haven't sent long-range probes. They haven't sent anything out there. This is the same thing that we see in Voyager when they're thrust into the Delta Quadrant. 
there are species and technology there that completely baffle their ship and the crew and they're clearly not ready for that but they have to of course like adapt and go for it but yeah, I just, I think it's very negligent of Q. It's, it shows his childish behavior. It shows that he does not think through his actions and his consequences. He doesn't think about how, oh yeah, maybe introducing the entirety of the Federation to the Borg probably decades earlier can be really detrimental to the future because Q thinks he's above that. He is, he knows he's a higher being. He knows that he can control all these things, but he does want to see chaos and he wants to make his puppets dance for him essentially and this is the thing that makes Q very dangerous and that makes him such a worthy adversary for Picard in particular because Picard is so strict with the rules he is very straight-laced and he will follow rules to the letter when they make sense you know sometimes he'll bend them if he thinks they're dumb rules which is fair (laughs) but for the most part he's the antithesis of Q and this is what makes them such fun rivals and such a fun like pair to watch, but also what makes Q so hard to defeat or deal with because he does these chaotic things that could not have been predicted and it's hard for Picard to keep up with that. Yes, Rihanna, I totally agree with you. They are such a fascinating pair to watch together. They have such great commentary back and forth as well. I also just want to continue to emphasize the fact that by exposing the Federation this early, it's like it's like giving blood to a shark, you know? The Borg sees how powerful this galaxy-class starship is, and they want more. And they are now on the hunt for humans because of this. And unfortunately, just because they encountered one Borg ship, the hive mind is all collected. And so the Queen and all the rest of the Borg know about the Federation now. And instead of Ambly maybe wandering around the galaxy looking for people to assimilate, I think this now creates a goal for the Borg to say, hey, hey, we got to find out where all those humans are. We got to get them. Because I know they've encountered, you know, random humans probably from strange displacements that we see in some of the episodes, but they have never come across Earth or any of the colony planets or anything like that because they're so far out. So this is a terrifying uh, uh, target on the Federation's back now, all things to Q. And I also think, (laughs) much like the Federation has a prime directive, the Q continuum (laughs) needs some kind of system in place because Q is kind of breaking the I mean this he's not breaking the prime directive obviously but I feel like there has to be some rule to like exposing the species to this dangerous threat I I don't know maybe I'm just like biased and I don't want humanity to die but yeah understandably (laughs) (laughs) yes I think you're uh, absolutely right I think that it's very negligent on the continuum's part and Q says to Picard that space travel is not for the timid and one thing I will say that I admire a lot about Picard in this episode is at the end of the episode he tells Q that this actually caused a kick in their complacency and made them understand that whoa there are threats as big as the Borg out there that we need to be aware of and I think you know as bad as it is that he steered them towards the Borg it would I mean it is helpful that they know something about them obviously I don't think the the Borg would have met them for a long time anyway but they would have no clue about them and would get assimilated a lot faster so I think that 
Q maybe was attempting to show them how bad it was, but instead he armed them a bit and made them at least more capable of dealing with them in the future. I mean, it's not a great solution, but it's it's Picard's sort of glass half full <laughs> ending of the episode ideal. Well, and Q's doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. He should not have done this, but because the best captain in the fleet got to view the Borg before maybe like Barkley. <laughs> no, no, I don't want it. Like, I don't want to wreck Barkley. <laughs> and Barkley's on the ship and ignore that. Um, before maybe like someone like Captain Jellico. What if he saw uh, the Borg first? He would like get the whole ship killed. I think if Jellico saw the Borg first, he would be like, oh, I need to go be their captain and I need to, um, like, he just, like, I don't know what he would do, actually. He'd just he be would, dumb. He would do a first officer exchange. <laughs> <laughs> Make the Borg one of his first officers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, um, any, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think that this, the only way I can think that maybe the continuum did punish Q is in the episode Deja Q. And, like, maybe his, uh, he had started to do too many things like this. He maybe introduced more people to the Borg. Maybe he caused more chaos. I mean, Q clearly messes with people everywhere he goes. Like, he finds an entity and he's like, ooh, this looks like a fun sandbox I can play in for a while. Yes. And so, uh, the, the Q continuum kicks Q out and he has a split second to decide what entity he wants to become. And so he chooses human. And we think it's just a spur of the moment decision. Oh, shoot, I have to decide. Okay, I'm going to be human. No, he chooses human and he tells the continuum to go and put him on the Enterprise because he wants protection. He wants to be near Picard, number one. But he also needs to be protected from all of these creatures that he has tormented throughout his millennia or more obviously more as a cue see this is more evidence to me why the continuum is more against humanity than q is because q knows that one species that will protect him even if they hate him is humans because of the federation's justice system like they're going to give him a fresh chance even if he's done all these terrible things in the past um something that like the romulans maybe not maybe wouldn't have done <laughs> yeah he's two. sort of he's sort of an asylum seeker and so they understand that you know that's something that's the language that the federation speaks for sure yeah, and if Q was actually against humanity and said, oh, you're exploring too far, he would not become human for this. He would become, like, a slug or something. Yeah, I mean, he um, said he was considering becoming an amoeba. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, my point, absolutely. Yeah. This is such an interesting premise for an episode also because, again, in the original series, there's not the episode where Khan becomes a member of the crew and they have some laughs. <laughs> you know, like this Next Generation series throws these villains into different lights. So we have some sympathy for them and we see different perspectives on them because at this point, Star Trek is choosing to look at people from all of these different perspectives. And that's something about Star Trek that I think is just so unique. And it's what makes really good fiction is when you sympathize with the villain. And I felt pretty sad for Q in this episode. Even Guinan stabs him and <laughs> nobody believes that he's a human at all. And I think Data is the only one that is really nice to him. And he takes him on a great tour of the ship and they go and have ice cream together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I it's, think it's 
Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm just, of course, I want to talk about Data because I think that Data is the only one who can empathize as much as one android can with Hugh's plight because he has been spending his whole life trying to become human and have people believe that he is incapable of it and so Q is dealing with the opposite situation where he spent his whole life being a Q and now people think he's incapable of being human and I think it's this lovely dynamic they have of course Q is still horrible to data he still says all of these things that are awful and make me want to punch him in the face because he's hurting my son but Mm -hmm. I think the data of course takes it in stride because he's an android and those things do not affect him in ways it would the other crew members and he understands that Q is lashing out based on fear and based on this desperation because he knows that he is going to be in danger and i mean we see a species come and try to kill him in this episode like a mere 30 minutes after he joins the crew essentially so i think that this really shows data's capacity to understand people and to understand their situation because he looks at looks at things through a logical lens and he analyzes them without the detriment of emotion and I think that that helps him to understand these villains better and I just love that we have this perspective and that Data was the one I think Picard made a great choice of making Data the one who sort of watches over Q because as much as Picard hates Q I think he knows that Data will be fair to him and he will uh, at least give him sort of the benefit of the doubt here. Ashlyn what you said about these villains and I think this is the essential point of why we're doing this villain series is because it's not black and white. This isn't some pulp sci-fi novel that has a villain with no redeeming qualities, which we will get to one soon in this yeah, series. Yeah, I was just <laughs> thinking of a villain with no redeeming qualities. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, for the most part, these villains are multi multifaceted and multi-tiered, especially when it comes to the next generation. I think that they worked hard, these writers did, to make these villains appear to be very complex especially someone like Q because I think a lot of people if you asked them if Q was a villain they would say no or they would say well you know (laughs) you know like it's kind of it's hard it's hard to pinpoint what a villain is in the next generation and Q here yeah he really defies that label in this episode because he is sort of this pitiful character in this and I think that adds sort of the sympathy card obviously I think that he's still meddlesome and he's still annoying and all of these other traits that we know and of course he still is as big-headed right when he gets his powers back as he was before you know before this clearly this experience of being human did not change him he did not have some sort of awakening of I don't know do you think he did I don't know I think I disagree with you because we talked about how great data is for Q in this episode and Q or and data does sacrifice himself Mm -hmm. for Q and data steps in the way and takes the electricity um the one electric electricity effect that always is in the next generation (laughs) data is hurt by this species that wants to hurt Q Mm -hmm. and I and that was the that was the the turning point I think for Q because after that he steals a shuttle and leaves the Enterprise because he wants to draw the attacks from the Enterprise onto himself so the Enterprise because they're in this whole situation where they're trying to like save this other species from this other thing and there's just a lot going on but so basically Q draws the attacks away by leaving in the shuttlecraft and that is not something he would have done before and that's that's 
the act that makes him uh, regain his status as a Q because the continuum sees that he was capable of this act of self-sacrifice and says, okay, you learned something. <laughs> so we're going to give you another chance to be a Q. And so I think that Q does not forget that when he is reinstated as a Q. I, I also think that in the following Q episodes, he doesn't do anything as bad as like needlessly letting 18 people die at the hands of the Borg. Like, I don't think he does anything that bad again. So, no, I, I don't know. That's a good point. I uh, think the yeah. Q episodes from this point on and why people think of Q as maybe not as much of a villain as, like, Khan is because he does begin to change because of his encounters with Picard and the Enterprise. Ashlyn, thanks for saying that. I think that you're right. There is this cha- this shift in Q. I think that... Because... Um, the thing is, is when he went to go sacrifice himself or take the shuttle, um, which why are there never guards on the shuttle bay? I will never know. Anyway, everyone just steals like shuttles everyone all the time. Everyone can just take the shuttle. Like, are the keys just in it? <laughs> like, <laughs> the the garage door is always open for the, for the shuttlecraft. There's no code. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> annoys me. But um, <laughs> he... Uh, he is intending to die at the hands of this species because he knows that his life as a human has been worthless, essentially. He says at one point, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it, this line, but he says essentially that, to, to Data specifically, that I failed at being a good human and i think that you are a better human than i will ever be to data which is such a beautiful thing to say especially for someone like data who's seeking this humanity so i do think there is these subtle changes in q but it and and he does save the planet like he does stop the moon from its decaying orbit and saves this entire planet or at least a half of the population so he is showing his act of gratitude when he gets his powers back so i will agree ashlyn with that i think that overall it is hard for q to learn a lesson that quickly and so this is where i'm a little like eh. q definitely learned a little bit about humanity as his time as a human but because his lifespan is ridiculously long he's uh, you know literally infinite and um what's it immortal (laughs) he's literally immortal and so i think that this is a blot you know this is a moment where he learned something but i think for q it's hard to maintain that you know once you have your powers back it's sort of like okay woo anyway back to what i was always doing you know and that's what um where i can give him a little pass be like okay he is immortal this is some a very small event on the grand scale of his entire existence but I think you're right. It did change him more. And maybe I'm a little too harsh with Q. But I think that, like, I don't know. The things that he does in the following episode, Cupid, are still bad and still annoying. And still this demonstration of his childish behavior. And maybe I'm just too Picard in this where I'm like, Q, get out of here. <laughs> but nobody dies. Yeah. That's true. I think that's an improvement. I think no death is good. I think you can yeah. you can make people angry and piss them off, but they didn't die. They didn't die, but Picard almost got beheaded, and so did Vosh. So, hey, but he wouldn't have let that happen. There's no way. Yeah, he loves Picard way too much for that. There's no way he would have let that happen. Um, I also think that, and we're gonna explore this later in Voyager. Um, mm-hmm. but I also think that for a being like a Q, 
where you have no limits on what you can do, which sounds like a great song lyric. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> in your life as a cue, there's no limit to what you can do. <laughs> anyway. Yes, um, new track releasing soon. <laughs> it's Drop it on Q. SoundCloud. It's called Q Who. Um, uh, I think that it would be very hard to teach any kind of lesson at all to a cue so yeah. i don't know what their discipline system is like because it seems like you can just do whatever you want all the time with no consequences so i feel like cue for the first time in his life is restricted and he's like a he's like a child and you know like that first big lesson that you learn as a kid growing up is impactful on you so sure True. he's immortal he's gonna live forever he's gonna show up in picard season two Woo. and um we're gonna talk more about that at the end of this cue section because i'm screaming yeah every day mm -hmm. when i think about this so in the next episode uh cupid Oh, wait, sorry, one more thing. I also yeah. forgot to say that Q also gives Data laughter, which puts me so much higher in his, in my good books for Q because that was the cutest scene I've ever seen. And Data absolutely loved being able to laugh. Anyway, that just warms my heart. No, absolutely. And that's, again, why I think, you know, Q's thanking him for this lesson that he learned mm -hmm. and maybe giving him that laughter now Q's off the hook. He's like, now I don't have to be nice anymore because I was nice once. Yeah. <laughs> like a male white senator he's just like i did one good thing for you <laughs> anyway anyway spice. <laughs> i have no consequences to my actions oh. anyway spicy. cupid yeah let's go to cupid okay cupid. this is our last q episode by the way this is a delightful episode because we get to see Worf dressed up like a merry man. <laughs> Even though he is not one. Let's be let's make that very clear. Also He's not a merry man. Can we just say one of my very favorite lines from anything in all of Next Generation is when um I don't know if it's this episode, but it's one of the episodes where uh Q is like, What shall you have me do? And Worf goes, Die. Yeah. <laughs> That is this one. Yeah. And he says, oh, Worf, eat any good books lately? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the interactions between Worf and Q give me so much serotonin. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. Oh, This is such a fun one, too, because we have learned throughout Next Generation that Picard loves archaeology. He has watched the Indiana Jones trilogy like 60 times. He's got it totally <laughs> memorized. And now, as a, as a man, he loves archaeology. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so there's this whole conference about archaeological stuff, and Picard has to give this speech that he's been working on, and Troy is like, it's a great speech, Captain. And <laughs> the whole crew is very supportive. And then Q comes and literally burns his speech, which is hilarious. Oh, yeah. He's like, it's very pedantic and boring, because they are not allowed to go to these ruins. Um, they're not allowed to go to these ruins on Theta 3 or whatever planet they're on. Um, and... So he says that like his speech is boring because he doesn't actually know what it, the ruins looked like, which I thought this episode was going to lead to him taking him there and then going on a little date together. Me too. Me too. That's what I thought was going to happen. But Q has something totally random in mind because I guess he just read Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. He's just like, okay, that was a fine enough book. I guess I should recreate this. 
Yeah, so he, while Picard is giving his speech, he pulls, he, he turns all the characters so their outfits, instead of wearing Starfleet uniforms, are like Robin Hood outfits. So we have Data as Friar Tuck. Worf is a merry man. <laughs> they all have bow and arrows. Troy is actually learning how to shoot during this episode. <laughs> and Picard is Robin Hood. He even has the cute little mustache. <laughs> mustache. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, and, and Rian, yeah. you want to talk about Vosh a little bit in this episode? I would love to talk yeah. about Vosh because yeah. she's sort of a contrarian in this episode. She is someone that Picard met on Ryza and they had a nice little adventure together early on, a couple seasons ago. And now she's back for this archaeological conference. And it turns out, first of all, I love this, that Picard does a good impression of Riker picking people up, which apparently he's done for Vosh before, which is yes. just the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, um, so Vosh becomes this factor for Q that I think is jealousy. I'm just going to say it now because I think that Q is very into Picard, whether it be platonic or romantic is, you know, up to the viewer. But I think at least in, on my view and on my sort of queer leaning view, I see that Q literally says at one point, he says, oh, well, if I had known that you were interested in Vosh in this way, maybe I should have appeared as a woman. And so he is showing Picard, he's saying that um, he Q wants to be the explorer that Picard sleeps with. You know, Q wants to be the one that is in Picard's bed. Just saying. But anyway, so also we find out in this episode that I think it spawns from jealousy that the fact that Picard is so enamored with Vosh and spends a lot of time with her. And it's very hard for Picard to open up romantically to people, as we learned in our Love and Affection series. So when he does open up to someone, it's very rare. And so I think Q finds the perfect pressure point. He says, Q says that he has been looking for a weakness in Picard since he met him. And he finds that this weakness is love. And it's about caring for people. And so he decides to enact a little play, a little Robin Hood play where Vosh is the damsel in distress and Marion. <laughs> yes, Marion. <laughs> Loss of the moon for you, Marion. <laughs> anyway, um, and yeah, if we don't have It's a Wonderful Life references in our Star Trek podcast, what are we even doing here? <laughs> shut the whole thing down yeah <laughs> um yeah so he creates this little play for them to enact in the sh in showing picard that love is detrimental and that it is a weakness and i just think this is very telling of q this is very this really shows q's hand as much as he finds a weakness in picard Picard finds a weakness in q in this i think and i hope that we can go back to this in picard season two I hope we can. <laughs> yeah, I also just want to take note that in way back in Q Who, the only reason that Q uh, like, took the Federation back into the Alpha Quadrant and away from the Borg Cube was when Picard started uh, praising him and sucking up to him, basically. And so what Q really wants out of all these interactions is Picard to like be nice to him and yeah. be obedient towards him and to learn the lesson that Q is trying to teach him. So it's a very yeah. one-sided relationship for sure. Absolutely. But I definitely agree that you can view this through a queer lens. And I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I also think that Q is Mr. Steal Your Girl because at the end of this episode, he steals Vosh away from Picard <laughs> and literally flings her around the galaxy. <laughs> literally does. I actually wrote down that Riker was Mr. Steal Your Girl in this one as well <laughs> because he immediately comes up to Vosh and is like, hello. <laughs> so everyone's trying to get Vosh from Picard, which is like crazy because Picard's amazing. <laughs> well, and Vosh is amazing too. Vosh yeah. is awesome. And I loved seeing her again in this episode. Of course, she was in an earlier episode where Picard has a little fling with her on Risa, and they have a little Indiana Jones archaeology adventure. Uh-huh. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think this, this Q episode is fun, but still has the... He's still trying to hammer a lesson into Picard, which is like, don't let love be your weakness. Yeah. Which is Q's <laughs> weakness. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. So, so let's briefly talk about... Picard do you want to a little yeah I just want to say that if you haven't seen the Picard season two trailer yet you really need to because Q looks like a beautiful silver fox yeah and I cannot wait to see how this season is going to unfold yeah we know it's going to be some Q shenanigans uh, and I think that all of us were correct in assuming that Q was going to come back because of those Q or because of the queen cards in the flashback. We all sort of guessed it, so. Oh, yeah. Well, and so, Rihanna, should we talk about all good things now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's kind of awkward to talk about the series finale right now in the middle of the podcast, but we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Q actually is not really in the finale all that much, but he is the entire plot of the finale. The continuum is still trying to put humanity on trial and q is still the main judge in this trial turns out and turns out the hunter exam never ended (laughs) (laughs) that's a hunter hunter reference yeah you should watch that anime the exam is still going i guess yeah (laughs) well and that's exactly what q says to picard is the trial never ended picard and (laughs) so So Q sets up this situation where Picard is the only one who is able to travel through different periods of his life. And there is a central theme, and that is that there is some kind of anomaly happening in the same part of space in every time period. You know, it starts out where he's in normal Enterprise D era in season seven, and then he travels to the future where he's an old man in season one of Picard. Um, and then he travels to the past where it's encounter at Farpoint all over again, back to the pilot. And this anomaly is occurring and Q wants him to figure out the puzzle of can you overcome your own boundaries that you have and can you figure out the science of what's going on in order to save all of humanity? And so my question is, is this just a random puzzle that the Continuum and Q came up with or... Did this actually happen where Picard, the first time around, really destroyed all of creation? And then Q's giving him the opportunity to fix it. Yeah, I wonder about this because Q talks about how time is uh, not linear and how Picard's view is limited because of his linear notion of time. And so I am wondering if in some other time 
loop or something that that the Q continuum witnessed that Picard destroyed it that would be my guess is that some mistake he made and then of course Q is like oh we can't let this happen I need to go and reset this and see if he can do it right this time and I can go mess with him and taunt him a little in the process so it's a win-win for Q that would be my guess because it seems a little unlikely unless they can see alternate timelines which is very possible because the Q are very powerful, that maybe they saw what could happen. But I think you're absolutely right that it did happen and the continuum reset it to have him try it again. I'd be surprised if it wasn't in play because we see when Picard does things differently in the pilot world where he's much younger, he does things differently than how the pilot goes. Like he calls for red alert when he's first being sworn in as captain and he doesn't go to Farpoint Station to pick up Riker, which is like a huge divergence from how the episode is supposed to go. And yet when he jumps forward into the present and then into the future, they don't remember those events happening or taking place. This is why All Good Things was not in our time travel series, because it's not really time travel. It's kind of like universe jumping. Yeah. Or some weird Q nonsense. <laughs> yeah. And so that's that's a clue to me that this isn't, isn't necessarily... These universes and time periods are not all related. These are three possible things that could have happened in Picard's life that just happen to be in this universe right now because that's where the anomaly is and being created and everything. So it's a little vague yeah. <laughs> uh, about what Q's plan is and what the Continuum's plan is, except that the goal is to make humanity and Picard specifically see into a larger 4D, 5D view of time, like the way that Q sees time. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he, he passes, Picard saves the day, and he's able to understand, oh, we should not have polarization of the <laughs> effect, and we sure. have to create a static warp bubble and explode <laughs> the Enterprises, and it's a very dramatic and amazing finale. But yeah, I just can't help but see a lot of parallels between Encounter at Farpoint and All Good Things, because we even see the same trial, the same people who were attending the trial in the first episode are back again. And we even see the same trial room, the same courtroom. Q is in the same outfit. And again, during this test in the finale, Q is appearing to talk into Picard's ear and give him little hints and say, isn't that weird, John Luke? Isn't that weird that all this stuff is happening? And he even takes him to the beginning of creation and shows him that the anomaly is much, much bigger. Beginning of human creation, we should say. Oh my goodness, yes. Beginning of human creation, not all of creation. <laughs> yeah, so he really cares about humanity and he's trying to help them develop and evolve, but he has boundaries with the queue that he can't cross. And so he's doing what he can to help them, but it is still a test. Yeah, this completely contrasts the way that he acts in the first episode. I think that he's learned so much about the Enterprise, about humanity, about Picard, all of these things that he's starting to realize if humans are pushed in the right direction, they will often do the right thing, I think, is sort of Q's consensus, or at least what I got from this episode. And I think that it's so, so amazing that the writers chose to bring back the trial in this episode because having it be a full circle of seven seasons of a show come back to the same concept from the pilot is so impressive and to have Q be the center of this is such a smart way of doing it because Q really does interweave a lot of the things that we see in 
the series. I mean, like we talked about with the Borg, like we talk about with Guinan. I mean, he is a integral part of why a lot of things happen on the next generation and so i'm really really glad the writers chose this direction it's such a smart way of wrapping up a series and showing the differences that even q has now q is a very different character in this final episode than he is in the first he's a lot less arrogant i mean obviously he's still q he's still arrogant but he is far more willing to guide than to mock which i think is a really interesting difference Absolutely, and it also creates this beautiful arc for both Picard and Q as characters because we get to see, because Picard throughout Next Generation does not have that much of an arc. I think you would look at Picard's arc as a, oh shoot, what's, there's a literary term for it. I think it's just like a flat arc actually. Yeah, besides where, his Borg arc, but. Besides his little Borg issues. Yeah. But Picard fundamentally, you can watch the first episode and the last episode, he's the same person he believes in the same things. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's a little softer and that's it. And so sometimes the flat arc is really powerful in a situation where there are a lot of characters. He is the core of the Enterprise. He is the stability. And everyone around him is growing and changing, but they still have him at the core to keep them steady through the storm of uh, changing time periods and anomalies and craziness on the Enterprise. Absolutely. So it's, it's great to see Q also being a little more civilized and you get to see them at their very best when they face off in this episode absolutely yeah i love q i'm so glad we got to include him in this conversation because he's a fascinating being and like we keep talking about season two i'm gonna scream every day yeah this is absolutely not the last we'll be talking about q so no definitely not so stay tuned (laughs) (laughs) So, Ashlyn, now I'd like to move on to a character who is probably as chaotic as Q, but uh, just crazy (laughs) and a lot. And this is Lore. This is Data's twin brother, the android that was built first and then taken offline when he was too evil, essentially, (laughs) by Dr. Noonien Soon. Yeah, and not only did, like, one person think he was too evil, the all the colonists voted <laughs> <laughs> that he was too evil, and they voted to deactivate him. <laughs> yeah, it's because, you know, this crystalline entity, he befriended uh, that it's a very evil entity that wants to destroy colonies, and it destroyed the colony that he lived on. <laughs> I mean, come on, this is the literal definition of an evil twin brother, and this is what makes Data Lore a fun and also very true episode i think that it's got all of the evil villain evil twin brother tropes in it it's got them changing outfits and then him pretending to be data (laughs) it's got a cgi double of the two of them fighting it's got everything it's 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 a very fun episode in a way but it's also a little cringy because lore is just cringy in general he is a tough character to empathize with obviously he's the villain but he it's it's hard to see 
Data's face on someone like Lore is how I put it. (laughs) Yes, and I love this episode because it makes you look at Data a little differently because we're actually getting his whole background in Mm -hmm. this. We're finding out he was discovered 26 years ago, which I'm I'm 25, so I understand Data. It's hard going through your 20s. (laughs) Mid 20s is tough, but at least Data was like born an adult, so he's been working his whole life already. He was born in his 20s. Yeah. He was never a boy, as he yeah. says. <laughs> oh, yeah, you slay me. You can just pull out random data quotes from this guy. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I also just want to point out that when we meet Lore, he's in pieces. And he actually looks a lot like B4, which we're going to meet like later in Nemesis. We're not going to talk about that at all. No. But I just wanted to point out, whenever we meet androids, for whatever reason, they're all like body parts are in drawers on display. Yeah. And usually if reason. they're not put together, you probably shouldn't put them together. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were put apart for a reason. I thought it was kind of similar, their curiosity with lore of putting him back together as the same curiosity of waking up Khan. I just thought that was an interesting, like, okay, we're going to wake him up and see how this goes, essentially. Same with lore and, of course, with dire consequences. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting comparison. So true. I can't help Data's curiosity because it's an exact replica of him. And actually, when we were watching this, my stepdad said, oh, if Data loses an arm, he's got an extra one now. That's hilarious. <laughs> Which I thought was a great way of looking at it. You know, if they yeah. hadn't put lore together, Data could have had some spare parts. But alas, they had to create another er, life form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Data had to be opened up himself so that the engineers and Dr. Crusher could see how Data works. So then they could use that knowledge to put lore together. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that lore says when he opens his mouth mm-hmm. is a lie right away it's not like he started off nice and betrayed everybody right away he's like i'm the better android i'm perfect and data's terrible and i was created i'm the younger brother all of this stuff none of it is true we end up finding out later i think the the crew the next generation crew is so trusting and especially because of someone like data you assume oh the android is not gonna lie data doesn't have the capacity to lie or it's not logical to him to lie either right so why would he so they apply the same rules to lore and that's what makes him such a formidable enemy in this episode because they implicitly trust him he's just evil through and through he doesn't even try to tell the truth at all no and this is the thing is that he also makes data feel inferior right away he says i am better at this i am more capable i i'm able to do contractions when you're not all of this stuff that data then nods and says yes that is correct you are better at me than these things you know which I mean I guess is logical data being like I can clearly see the facts in front of me but it's an instant power play that lore enacts on data to say that he is better to say that data is inferior automatically puts him higher up in data's mind and also sort of gains his trust because data does appreciate first of all a species like him an android like him and someone who is created by the same person and someone who's better than him, so he's seeking to be like him. Yeah, he's just instantly, Lore puts himself on this pedestal for Data, and that makes him also dangerous because he's very good at manipulating people. When he turns Data off and then tells 
Crusher pretending to be Data that he turned him off. Crusher is shocked because Data had in confidence told her where his off switch was and that he even had one. And the fact that then Lore immediately uses that as a weakness for Data. He tells the whole crew, or essentially he tells the bridge crew, that he has an off switch. And that is a complete violation of Data's trust. It's a show of power to say, oh, I turned him off. And now you all know that he has an off switch, so you can use that against him. Which they will in Measure of a Man. You can definitely tell that uh, Lore is the older brother here. He knows exactly which, literally, which buttons to push, both physically and emotionally, for Data. Yeah. And he can manipulate him into being on his side. Also, his use of the word brother immediately draws Data to him and draws the crew to him. And they all have so much sympathy for both of them. Like, oh, these brothers reunited again. This is so nice. Let's show Lore exactly how the Enterprise works. This is maybe the stupidest thing I saw in this entire watch through. Oh my God. Crazy villains that we're facing. And yet Jordy goes right up to the comm and he's like, come on, Laura, let me show you how to run the ship. <laughs> Has like, anyone watched any of the original series? Do they see how many machines took over the Enterprise by learning, reading really fast the information about I the mean, ship? are you serious? And he's like, oh, and this is the weapons button? Great, you know? <laughs> Here's the inner workings of the ship. Here's how I can what? lock out everyone's code. Yeah, I know, it's ridiculous. He, I couldn't believe that. Yeah, the thing that makes Lore so dangerous, I think, in my eye as well, is that he has emotions, and so it makes him more volatile, and it makes him easier to or it makes it easier for him to manipulate people as well as being as smart as data so that's a very dangerous combination and no wonder dr soon was like oh wait we need to disassemble this very freaky guy i think they should have thrown him into a supernova honestly so what we find out is that lore is the entire reason that the colonists are dead and that Data has no family and was found on this random planet that's totally desolate is because Lore contacted this evil crystalline entity and said, hey, there's some good food on this planet for you. (laughs) And the crystalline entity ate everybody and they're all dead. Literally, Lore gave the colonists a five-star review on Yelp and then the crystalline entity was like, perfect. Oh my god, yeah, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) Yeah, so they have it out at the end of this episode where Data and Lore are fighting in the cargo bay and Wesley is there and he threatens Crusher, uh, Beverly Crusher. He's like, you leave or I'll shoot your son. He's awful to Wesley. He like tries to kill him. He calls him like a a brat that he's gonna like put down. I don't know. It's something really dark that he says to Wesley about like wanting to murder him. So clearly he's showing very murderous intent. He's gotten people killed before. And what does Data do? He beams him into space. Yeah, roast. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Why, I should say freeze. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very, very confusing time for me in this episode. At the end of this episode, it's very confusing as to how Lore survives this. I know that he's an android and I know that... He doesn't need to breathe or have, you know, he's not, he doesn't have human functions or humanoid functions, but I feel like he would still freeze in space. I feel like his positronic net would freeze in the well, compressing vacuum of space or he'd explode or something. Does the crystalline entity save him? 
Maybe. Does he, like, go into, like, its arms like a hug and, it, like, <laughs> takes him back to the planet? Another I- another Uber <laughs> situation here. <laughs> Maybe, I, because the next time know. we see him, he's, like, leading a bunch of Borg. So, which we're not going to talk about that episode, but, like, he's definitely alive and he comes back a lot. So, I don't know how, but I mean, he makes it out. I think it's a family gene where the Soon family, you think that they're dead all the time and they end up coming back, you know? <laughs> Except for Literally. Yes. Um, but we seek, but Dave is still alive and Picard. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. So, so they really do. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. the answer is just that the Soons, like, randomly survive and then die when it's appropriate later. Yeah, at the right moment. Yeah, so we're not going to talk about the other Data episode, or the other Lore episodes, because this is the one where he's most evil, is Data Lore. It's a great analysis of Data versus Lore, and also, in our family series, we talked about all their brotherly dynamic. Go listen to our Next Generation family series, where we talk about Lore and Data. Absolutely. So now we're going to stick with these season one vibes and talk about this guy in Skin of Evil, Armis, who is a literal blob of goo. The most evil blob of goo to ever exist, I think. <laughs> what do you think, Ashlyn? Uh, I can't think of it. Well, Flubber was kind of scary in that oh. movie. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess you're right, but wow, I don't know why you had to bring that up. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, 90s Robin Williams movies maybe can't compare to uh, 80s Star Trek, <laughs> but. <laughs> um, so this episode, Picard literally calls Armis. He says, you are capable of sadism and cruelty. No redeemable qualities. <laughs> <laughs> so zero stars. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> this is a zero star Yelp review for Armis. <laughs> terrible service he killed my crew member do not go to this planet (laughs) yeah this is where tasha yar perishes she does not make it out of this episode it's pretty sad and it's awful because it's meaningless i think that this is something that makes her death even worse and i know that like any character death is tough but a lot of times it's like oh well they died saving someone or they died for this cause or something happens where you feel at least a little bit more at peace because you're like okay at least that their death meant something to the whole of the federation or you know something like that like when we see other characters die they usually go out in a blaze of glory because this is how uh star trek often operates but i think the thing that makes armis such a horrible villain and someone that we had to discuss on this pod is the fact that he kills Yar because he wanted to and he actually wishes he could have killed her slower to make her suffer which is so horrible I can't even fathom like what the Enterprise crew is going through with this kind of grief knowing that her death was completely meaningless and knowing that Troy actually felt her friend die so it's just horrible that this had to happen all because they crash landed, the shuttle crash landed on this planet with Troy and this other crew member, and they were unable to escape because of this blob of goo, this Armis goo. Yeah, and Armis is an interesting character because he was created because of something that the species did. So there used to be the species on this planet, and I think he describes them as titans, who, so it seems like. Well, Rihanna has, like, an attack on Titan face. (laughs) 
That like literally terrified me. Um, so maybe not like Attack on Titan Titans. Eren Jaeger. Am- Eren Jaeger. Um, I'm thinking about more like Norse mythology Titans, like a, a race of powerful creatures yeah. who yield i don't know a lot of power i don't don't know yeah but so it's these people were on this planet and they wanted to shed all of their evilness off of their personalities and so they created a higher life form than themselves and this higher life form is generous and loving and perfect and wonderful and then they shed their skin of the terrible things they wanted to discard like everything that Armis is and Armis is the skin of evil because he is what remains of someone when you take away all of their good qualities and you can kind of view this as a really confusing enemy within episode I was just gonna say that yeah 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 so Armis is like evil Kirk (laughs) yeah I was like if they had left evil Kirk on the planet (laughs) to be alone forever this is the thing that's kind of dark about This this um, Sorry, this this is Evil Kirk plus Khan, like, merging together. Oh, <laughs> shoot, you're right. Oh, my God. But anyway, so we have Armis here, who is just the sadist, the skin of evil, literally. And Troy tries to do therapy on him, which I think is so admirable and something that makes me really respect Troy, because she does not lose her head, even though she knows Yar is gone. She is attempting to reason with a literal evil entity, like an entity born of evil uh, attributes. And it kind of works in a way. I mean, he spends a lot of time talking with Troy about his loneliness and about his despair because he was left on this planet by himself and he can never die. So he's left in an eternity of miserable loneliness. So I obviously have a little bit of empathy for him in this situation because yeah that sounds really sucky obviously but when people do come along he tortures them he literally toys with them he took off Jordy's visor and like had data not help him find it all of these things that are just like needlessly cruel so anyway yeah i feel a little bit sympathetic for the goo guy because he's by himself i even wrote my notes poor goo guy but i also <laughs> remember that he killed yar and wanted to torture her and this is what Par- picard remembers picard goes down to the planet by himself he pulls a kirk and decides that he needs to be the one to deal with this ultimately evil entity and he says this is between you and me and i think that this is a very kirk moment it's very cool to see picard go down and have sort of this philosophical debate with this goo and he sits with him literally and has this discussion about morality and goodness and he realizes that armis is not capable of changing or of becoming good or any remorse and so he leaves him on the planet to suffer forever and he tells the federation that this is a world that is off limits i was shocked by this yeah i was shocked because i feel like we've seen episodes similar to this where they give the villain a chance to improve themselves and so i'm wondering for picard maybe he was just so impacted by the death of his bridge officer by his chief of security yeah that he could not give armis a chance but i thought I mean, Armis is terrible. Like, obviously, he's, like, the skin of everything that's wrong with 
humanity and and creatures in general yeah um and like he's he's his first impulses are the worst possible impulses yeah but i thought actually with a little bit of therapy from troy he was getting better he was able to be manipulated into doing good things or into showing mercy and yeah, that's not the best way of changing someone is not to manipulate them, obviously. Sure. But I felt like it indicated that there was a path that he could take after a lot of more therapy, yeah, <laughs> to become a better a, a better blob. And I was really surprised. I thought that they were going to give him transport to another world, or they would at least find like a lady blob to be with him, or something, <laughs> or Where's a the friend, other blob? Yeah. or like literally any other creature. Like, what about a tree that he could like grow up with or nurture or something? I don't know. I just I was shocked that Picard totally said, "Nope, you have no more chances." I just feel like that's very unfederation of him and very unpicard and so my only conclusion is that he was so rocked by this needless death of yar which it is it's a terrible death it's a product of denise crosby not wanting to be on the show and the writers kicking her off and disagreements behind the scenes is why she got such a terrible death mid-season yeah but armis is terrible but i actually thought that he might have a turn he might be able to turn the corner and do a little better but Nope. <laughs> yeah, you know, it kind of reminded me of some original series episodes where the creature is just like, so alone. And then the episode ends and you're just like, oh no, that's an animated series episode. <laughs> animated series. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I can't believe they're pulling an animated series <laughs> ending here where they're just like, okay, I'll abandon you forever. Bye. Insane. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this amazing Klingon episode, Redemption Part 1 and 2, this is another one where we have two villains. Again, we talked a lot about this in our family series, so we will not be focusing on the family aspect in this one today. This is a team-up episode. Yes, exactly. So this is one that's kind of in the middle of Worf's plot. <laughs> Worf's, like, <laughs> series-long development. Honor arc? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the honor arc, absolutely. And so at this point, Worf has no honor. He's the son of none because his father was tricked into or his father was blamed for the failure of the Kittimer Accords and betraying the Klingon High Council, when in fact, it was not Worf's dad. Of course it wasn't. Of course it was the family of Duras. So Worf is asking Gowron, who's about to become Chancellor, if he can have his honor back and expose the secrets of the Duras family. But it turns out they are still so powerful. And even though Duras himself is dead, the Duras sisters are still in town and they found a hair. A hair. They found um, they found an heir. <laughs> One singular hair to rule them all. <laughs> Jesus H. Oh, okay. Um, they found an heir. So their brother apparently had a son. I felt like this was a very like Robert Baratheon mood, like in Game of Thrones, where they're just searching for anyone who's the son of the king yeah. to rule. And this is what the Duras sisters do. They find this tiny little guy and say, he is the son of Duras, so he will be the leader of the council. And Picard is involved in all of this because he was Worf's Chadich, and he is also the Federation representative, so he's the one who has to choose either this little Duras son or the or Gowron. 
Yeah. It's, it's a tough position. Him and Worf both have a very tough time in this episode. Well, um, particularly, can I add really quick? Particularly, Picard has a tough time because the Duras sisters are very good at manipulation. And they show him that, well, if you do, if uh, you let us have our little guy <laughs> lead the council, then... Like that—that's of course what they want. But uh, but Picard knows that that will have war break out between the houses. But if they have Gowron lead the council, then war will break out between the Duras sisters. People will rally around the Dur- the House of Duras because they are a very powerful family. And Picard is put in this position, and the Duras sisters try to like schmooze him a little. They get him some tea. They like are really trying to get him on they his side. Rub his bald head. <laughs> Which Ashlyn, you're like, ooh. I hope I wish <laughs> well, that I was Lursa here. <laughs> I mean, actually, like one percent, I do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially when when Baytor is like up on Wharf. But anyway, <laughs> no, that was very non-con, and I didn't like it because he was asleep. Anyway, not good. They're not good. These sisters are obviously <laughs> manipulating people, <laughs> but they're trying to manipulate Picard, but this is Picard we're talking about. He's not so easily maneuvered. So anyway, continue, Ashlyn. If it was Riker, I think he would bang them both and give them the counsel. You do? <laughs> I think he'd bang them both and then stab them in the back. <laughs> Yeah, he's still got to get a little something out of it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Well, yeah, so that is what is so powerful about the Dura sisters. It is impressive, though, because we've talked about before that women, Klingon women, have really... They, they have hardly any rights, and there's no women allowed on the council at all. And that's why they just can't claim to be the leaders of the high council, to be the chancellor, because they're women. And that's the only thing standing in their way. They are like full heirs to the Duras family. They should have all the rights and titles of everything, but yeah. they don't because they're women. And so they have to finesse their way into keeping power. And the gene of the Duras family being terrible but very powerful is thriving in both Lursa and Bator. Yeah. <laughs> they are just, they're super smart and they have created a lose-lose situation for the Federation and for Worf. And let's talk about this now. They have also teamed up with the Romulans to gain power. And this is something that has not happened before where they have reached out, not just to any Romulans, but to Sela who, this is our second villain in this episode, so this is a very powerful villain episode yeah. right now. And Sela, this is another, get ready for another 10-minute story. So Sela was the daughter of Tasha Yar when Tasha was sent back in time to Enterprise C in an alternate universe, right? Or was this the yeah. real universe? Real universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So real universe, she was sent back to Enterprise C by Picard because he knew, uh, well, you're going to die in my timeline, so you should stay back in time. Um, and then that Enterprise C was taken captive by Romulans. And then she was like, y- you know, ta- she was taken prisoner. She was a consort of this Romulan general. And Sela was born and Yar was murdered after she tried to escape the compound with Sela because Sela yelled out and said that my mom is trying to kidnap me. 
And so Sela is half Romulan, half human, but full evil. Full <laughs> evil. Yeah. Yeah, full evil. She is team Romulan all the way. That's where she was raised. That's where her loyalties lie. And so the Dura sisters have teamed up with her. And I think this gives, this is huge shock value to Picard and the crew because they all know Tasha so well and they all dealt with her death like we just talked about in Skin of Evil. And so to see essentially Tasha's face after so long is incredibly jarring when there's a reveal at the end of part one of Redemption that it's Sela is the Romulan. So the Duras family is, or the Duras sisters are getting a ton of weapons and ship support from the Romulans. And that is really crushing Gowron and his fleet because that the council doesn't like him. He doesn't have nearly as many resources as the Duras sisters do. So it does not look good for him because the Romulan or because the Duras sisters have finessed their way into an incredible amount of power. Yeah, and the only ways to get around this is for Worf and Kern and Kern's fleet, Worf's brother Kern, which we love. We all love Kern in this house. <laughs> I'm like literally dancing for Kern right now. Yeah, I love Kern. I stand Kern. <laughs> yes, Kern. He, him, and his fleet are supporting Galron in this, even though Kern does not want to, but he has to listen because he's the younger brother. So I've been there, Kern. <laughs> That's right, Worf. You better impose your elder brotherness oh, upon why? the family. Hey, um, but Worf has to actively remind the Klingons at the council who the enemy really is, which is the Dora sisters, and then, of course, the Romulans that they learn about later. And I think it's really fascinating to see the Klingons team up with the Romulans, because this does not really go well in the end for them, because the Romulans are sneaky, and they will always back out of things when they see that it's not going well for them. And this happens when the whole fleet is engaged and employed to try and stop this oncoming war from happening. And Data, of course, saves the day because he's better than everyone. (laughs) And he realizes where the Romulan ships are cloaked, all of this stuff. But I think it's just fascinating and terrifying because Klingons already have cloaking technology and then Romulans also have it, but they have like different kinds of cloaking technology. So it's another resource they can use to oppose the Federation and oppose the Klingon High Council. It's kind of an epic battle. I mean, they're all gearing up. Riker's commanding one ship, Picard's commanding one, Data's commanding one. They have everyone's resources really spread out along the neutral zone, the Romulan neutral zone, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, where everything's gearing up. So, well, they the Federation set up a blockade, but he Picard was very smooth talking to the Romulans, and he said, "Oh, it's not a blockade. We're just like sending some survey ships. Yeah, don't, don't worry, worry about it. Yeah, and they're all armed to the teeth. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> we're just like doing a survey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So." Gowron is not very helpful in this episode. I was going to say that. He's not very smart. No, no. no. We never really, we all know this about Gowron, especially in upcoming Deep Space Nine episodes, that he's not the most excellent leader. And he literally just leaves Worf to die and says, I hope he dies well. Which, you know, that's nice enough, but it's also like he's clearly also, I mean, I don't want the Dora sisters to be leading because they're just evil and they're not not good news for the Klingons in general because they're too power hungry. But I just, yeah, I wish it was someone better than Galron because I think this situation would have been a lot better and a lot easier to manage if it had been 
I don't know, someone of a different stature or a different um, strength than Gowron had. I don't know. Isn't that kind of like most politics where you want someone better and more idealistic <laughs> to be in charge and really it's just who whatever who you get <laughs> yeah joe schmo uh can be in office yep yeah we all wish it was someone better but but uh, here we, we are we we're stuck with to, galron we have to deal with galron i think it is really interesting that the dura sisters are the first ones to forge this relationship with the romulans mm-hmm. because if they had been able to continue this relationship and if the dura sisters had gotten command of the high council oh boy Oof. oh boy and this is why picard is so against them obviously he can't because he's the arbiter in this situation he can't be biased but as a federation liaison he is terrified rightfully so of the romulans having an inner ear to the klingon high council yeah or an outer ear or any ear <laughs> <laughs> it's just incredibly dangerous and it could really shift the power structure of the quadrant yeah um given that at this time romulans are not in the federation so oof yeah oof. and they won't yeah. be for a while no no they won't Not tell discovery no. um, <laughs> anyway yeah. Yeah. yeah so i i love this episode and i love seeing how cunning the dura sisters are how intelligent they are and also sila sila is i feel like she is more of a figure and she's kind of more the liaison to the dura sisters to see Picard and her interact is interesting too. There's the scene where uh, Sela explains everything that happened. Like Rihanna and I just explained about Tasha and how she died. I think it puts Picard, it totally puts him off kilter because he was not expecting this to happen. And so it's fascinating to watch him react in the moment to this shocking twist. Oh yeah, it's absolutely insane. I don't think anyone of us could have guessed that. (laughs) No, no, no. So that was fun. Let's talk about something else that's kind of fun. This uh, this episode, Ship in a Bottle, is some amazing f- fun times. <laughs> <laughs> when Ashley and I set off to do this series, we pretty much vowed to ourselves that we would talk about James Moriarty because he is a absolutely fun villain in any written timeline he's fun in the sherlock series on bbc he's fun in sir arthur conan doyle's works he's fun in the sherlock holmes movies and he's a blast to see in this episode of the next generation because everyone loves a good sherlock story and tng provided yeah i mean throughout all of next generation there are stories where data is sherlock and geordie is watson and they're running around solving mysteries together. And I just want to do a little shout out, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, thank you. And also thank you for not renewing your copyright after you died. So now the Sherlock Holmes characters and stories are public domain and we can have amazing uh, Sherlock adventures in Star Trek. It's my favorite crossover of all time. (laughs) Absolutely. And the dramatic irony of it all is that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle once quoted that if I am only remembered for the works of Sherlock Holmes, I will have considered my life a failure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is wild because he's one of the most famous characters of all time. Sherlock Holmes actually has an honorary degree in the, um, uh, in, fuck. The Science Academy. Yeah. Not not the Vulcan (laughs) Science Academy. (laughs) Although he should. Um, in some London science I don't know. I should, anyway. We should look it up because yeah. it's a real fact. It's a um, literal fact we learned on the Sherlock um, Holmes tour in London. 
That's how much yeah. we love Sherlock Holmes and this house, <laughs> listeners. Are you looking yes. it up or do you want me to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking it up. Oh, for the Royal Society of Chemistry, Sherlock Holmes is uh, an honorary member. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, his reach is far and broad, and I'm really glad that Star Trek chose this opportunity to bring him into this um, because it's really fun to see, of course, Data being the Sherlock character, Geordi being Watson. Um, Data is so smart that it's, you know, it's fun to watch him sort of rival this Sherlock's brain, and we see like Spock sh- quoting Sherlock as well. So these very intelligent brains are uh, manifesting as Sherlock, which is fun to see. One quick thing before we start this episode in, or we before we dive into Moriarty's character, beginning of this episode, they talk about how there's a glitch in the system because the character is supposed to be left-handed, right? And when, he, when Data throws the box to him and he catches it with his right hand, the facts that Data was building as Sherlock sort of crumbled. It's all relying on the fact that he's left-handed. But guys, he's smoking his cigar with his left hand. Oh. So he was just faking it. The the character was, like, outwitting Data? I think that he was smoking his cigar with his left hand and he didn't have time to catch it with his right hand. Oh, I see. So he's left-handed because he's smoking his cigar with his left hand. I don't think it's a glitch in the system. I think the data missed it. Maybe I'm just looking too deep into this, but I was literally like, what? Guys, if you're, you smoke with your dominant hand, right? Anyway, I, Rihanna's like, hi, I've read every Sherlock Holmes story and, uh, you should have figured this out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know. It just seems sus to me that no one thought of that. Anyway, sorry, I had to point it out because it really bugged me. I think you're onto something. Thank you. Uh, so this episode is awesome. This is a great episode. Um, it turns out that Moriarty can leave the holodeck, and nobody knows why. And this is terrifying because Moriarty is. Well, so first of all, not not even, like, Moriarty as a character, obviously, is the arch nemesis of Sherlock. He's the big bad villain, mm-hmm. the one that Sherlock was always battling with, and they both died at the Reichenbach Falls. Reichenbach Falls. Wow, drama. Intrigue. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> in Star Trek, the character of Moriarty was created by them telling the computer to make a nest, or to make a villain that could outsmart even Data. And so therein lies the problem. If you run a really powerful Starfleet ship, you should not be creating characters that can outwit your smartest person on board. No. That's that's rule number one. Like, maybe make someone who can outwit, like, Picard. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, very different answers there. But, but not Data, because if Data can't even figure out what's going on, we're in deep trouble. And that is the trouble that the crew finds themselves in during Ship in a Bottle. Yeah, so it turns out that Moriarty has been stored in the program since he was opened like a couple years ago. And we did not watch the episode previous to this where Picard apparently had a discussion with Moriarty about... Uh, it was very short giving him scene. freedom yeah 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 in another episode but then since then he's been supposedly just stored in the databanks but turns out he was conscious for a lot of the time that he was stored in the databanks and he says that he was that you left me to go quietly mad 
which reminds me a bit of Khan. <laughs> Khan. Yeah. <laughs> Buried alive. <laughs> Buried alive. <laughs> yeah, so sim- similar Khan vibes. He's stewing in this data bank for so long. And really, what he wants to do is leave. He wants to get out and have a real life. He does not want to be a set of memory programs, which again, photons be free. The doctor, the EMH had a right a right call here because especially holograms who are self-aware like Moriarty, this creates a very difficult situation for them. And I assume that the prime directive is just out the window. Yeah. <laughs> they show him the um, ship like it's no big deal. They show him he's in space like it's no big deal. This is another one that was not at Starfleet Academy. <laughs> there was no class about what do you do if a hologram that only knows about the 1800s gets lost on the ship. There, There's no protocol for this. So Picard's just doing his best. And actually, I am very impressed with how the crew handles this situation because they immediately view him as a being with rights and privileges. And they say, okay, well... We have to find a future for you, and we have to figure out what you're going to do on the ship, because now that he's sentient, they can't just put him back on the holodeck and shut him down, because he he, he can't be powered down. Yeah, and he, he will know it's all a fabrication. Exactly. And so this is a really tricky situation that they're in, and Picard does not know how to handle it. And I actually was really admiring Picard and he even has like a ruddy room discussion with his crew about what do we do about Moriarty and also is this the first hologram that has like self-awareness I believe so yeah first of its kind crazy yeah and the other crux of this is that Moriarty wants his love to come with him her her name is unfortunately Regina (laughs) but she is Regina yeah, yeah yeah But she's a hologram, and she is not self-aware until Moriarty gives her every piece of information and tells her about the outside world. And this is another tricky element he adds, because this is not some character that is like, this isn't Da Vinci hanging (laughs) out. I was just going to say Da Vinci. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Realizing, Realizing sentience. No. This is James Moriarty. This is a very famous villain who is notoriously smart and who notoriously outwits Sherlock on many different turns. And as we said, he's supposed to be smarter than Data. And so he locks everyone out of the voice commands and they're trying to figure out why. Why is this happening? Why can we not get back into our own ship? Like he is taking control of the entirety of the Enterprise. And it turns out Moriarty, being the genius that he is, created a holodeck simulation that means that they never left the holodeck and that he had been fabricating this all in order to try to see how he could actually escape the holodeck. Oh, yeah. This, this <laughs> I No, I, I had to have like a full five second shocking noise because I'm like positive that the people who made Inception watched this episode and said, we got to do that, but with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, Ashlyn, because this is the thing, is that then inside this holodeck, they create a smaller holodeck that tricks Moriarty into thinking that he has left the holodeck and that he escaped with his love and that they're traveling the cosmos together. What? Yeah, yeah, what? 
So once they realize, and it's actually, I think, only Data that realizes that they are on the holodeck, I think it's a similar thing to what happened at the beginning of the episode where, like, Jordy uses his left hand to do something, and then Data's like, um, Jordy's what? right-handed? Yeah. What's going on? So Data's the only one who notices the glitch in the Matrix, and so he is then able to counteract Moriarty and create a simulated shuttle where he can just go to any planet and now i mean moriarty is just traveling the galaxy in the holodeck with his beloved thinking that he's doing whatever he wants and i think that's a really awesome end for him because it compromises the fact that he is a sentient being and he should live his life and do whatever he wants to do but he's not like destroying a planet (laughs) or or like yeah doing anything evil or creating like a a gang that's actually gonna hurt real people yeah so i think this is a great compromise and it was a really fun episode because i did not all of these twists about the holodeck and who is where is is very awesome to see (laughs) yeah and we get a glimpse of barclay's prowess in the holodeck in this episode as well because he literally created a tiny holodeck that can sit on your desk. I mean, it's this tiny cube that Moriarty is in with his wife or his beloved or whatever. And I just think that that is so incredible and it paves the way for his like future in helping Voyager at home or attempting to in Endgame. But anyway, um, yeah, it's just, it's cool to see. And I'm like, okay, Red, she's actually doing something that's not cringy. That's great. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So now I think we should move on to maybe the second biggest baddies. Yeah, Ashlyn, um, how many lights are there? Um, there are four lights. <laughs> no, no, you're wrong. There are five lights. Four lights! <laughs> <laughs> this, of course, is Chain of Command, part one we, and two. We are making fun of one of the most intense scenes in The Next Generation. <laughs> yes, and one of the most brilliant acting moments in all of Trek. <laughs> what a honor to watch Patrick Stewart in this episode. This, of course, is Chain of Command, part one and two. And this is where the tensions with the Cardassians are really heating the F up. And Picard, Crusher, and Worf are assigned to a secret mission where they have to wear these amazing black leotards. Love it. Love the secret mission outfits. (laughs) And they make fun of them in Lower Decks, and that's all I could think about. Yeah. But uh, they are totally transferred off the Enterprise, and they are running... They are training in the holodeck nonstop for this mission they've been assigned to, sworn to total secrecy. And Captain Jellico, who we've referenced a couple times in this podcast so far, is actually a huge villain. And he's the he worst. is assigned to be captain of the Enterprise. He really butts heads with Riker. And the reason for all of this is because, according to Federation spies, they have found evidence or possible evidence that the Cardassians could be making a biogenic weapon which would destroy all the life on a planet and they don't say it specifically but we know from Deep Space Nine and from later episodes in Next Generation that the Cardassians are talking about Bajor yeah and they want to wipe off the Bajorans from their planet yeah because isn't this mid-occupation it is mid-occupation yeah yeah so Actually, the Cardassians are not doing this. This was all a trap to lure Picard or any high-ranking Federation officer 
into their trap so they could torture them and then get more information from them because the Cardassians do not really have a foothold in the Federation at all or really a platform to advocate their rights to. They are just at war or they're not at war with the Federation per se, but they are not in a a negotiation presence at all. And so I think to get the attention of people in higher command, this is the lengths that they want to go towards. And Absolutely. So I mostly just want to talk about the Cardassians, but there's a lot of trouble on the Enterprise because the ship is not running correctly with Jellico creating all of these new orders and Riker's butting heads with him and Riker ends up getting relieved. And Data's the first <laughs> officer. He gets to he wear a red shirt. Great, Ugh. great and red. Incredible. And he doesn't die. It's great. Amazing, yeah. Um, <laughs> but... There's a there's a couple of interesting negotiation scenes where Jellico is trying to feign negotiations with the Cardassians. Um, Rihanna, do you want to talk about these scenes at all? Yeah, I find them to be really interesting because Jellico's um, form of power in this episode is to make first of all make the Cardassian wait for him. He waits like an hour before he goes into the briefing room and the Cardassian is irate of course and then Jellico responds in kind by being even more mad and angry and puffing out his chest. His little peacock feathers are <laughs> all puffed out and he then sidebars with uh will and deanna i don't know why i'm calling them by their first names but here we are (laughs) and they he says i want you to go in there in a few minutes and say that i've cooled off and decided to actually talk and how he can have three representatives or two representatives come and we can start negotiations and so this is all jellico's way of trying to assert a certain kind of dominance i think it's dumb and i think it's not working and Riker agrees he because deanna no no is it deanna who's like he oh yeah because um troy knows that he's uncertain she can of course sense this in him and she that jellico is uncertain yeah, yeah. exactly that jellico is uncertain about this working and it's clear as the negotiations go on that it is not working this is it's really hard to get uh, the cardassians to agree to backing off to agree to a lot of things and they fall right, or at least Riker falls right into the Cardassians' game. He, uh, when they finally reveal that, oh, like, where's your captain? Where's Picard? Um, they say, oh, he was transferred. Okay, like, he's dropped the ship. And uh, he says, well, we have intelligence to say that your Picard, your precious Picard was captured and all this stuff. And, uh, First of all, Jellico's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Picard wasn't in this sector. And they say like, oh, but we have him captured and um, we're, we're keeping him alive for now or whatever. And Riker goes like, how do we know that? And he immediately falls right in their hands and admits. Idiot. Yeah, complete <laughs> idiot. He admits that, that Picard was on this secret mission or that he went into Cardassian space. And so it is just so reckless of Riker in this situation. And to an extent, I understand Jellicoe's anger, but I think that overall, Captain Jellicoe's um, decision in these negotiations, like the different choices he makes are not good ones. They are, he's falling too quick to anger to try and assert his dominance, but it doesn't work because he's trying to be the sort of like alpha. He's trying to show that he's the leader of this wolf pack and that he will get the Cardassians to fall into order, but they clearly don't know the Cardassians well enough. And we only know them because of 
Deep Space Nine and we really start to get to learn their their ins and outs and the kind of uh, people that they are. And obviously not all Cardassians are the same, blah, blah, blah. But these higher ups are very good at manipulation. They have been practicing this for years. They know how to work a room to their favor and they absolutely do this here. Well, and what it bothers me is that the reason that Jellico is captain of the enterprise right now anyway he was chosen specifically because he has had prior dealings with the cardassians and is considered an expert Mm -hmm. in his field with negotiating with them and so it's funny to me and i think it says a lot about politics about what normally happens is like oh i've had a couple meetings with this uh, culture of people so i know exactly how to like master them and yeah. how to manipulate them and really it's not true at all really he's digging himself further into a hole and he's playing right into their hands the cardassians are getting everything that they want yeah including a table to sit at and have negotiations while they torture the Picard. Federation. Yeah. While they torture Picard for more information. Yeah. And so they're having their cake and eating it too right now. And Jellicoe's just floundering in their hands. Absolutely. This is what makes him Jellicoe so awful and something that like the fandom just hates him for because <laughs> he, he is truly just incompetent and, and too egotistical about his own abilities and i think you're absolutely right ashlyn it is that sort of well i've met with this world leader once so i know exactly what they're going to do for the rest of time i also just want to shout out that if you do not follow uh captain jellico's twitter uh, you are really missing out because there are some (laughs) fire memes yes it's one of my favorite twitter accounts so please go follow uh captain jellico on twitter oh it's so funny (laughs) yeah so Ashlyn, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, supposed metagenic weapon that they talk about because uh, we have learned that even the Romulans have agreed to not using it. So this is actually a brilliant ploy from the Cardassians, a brilliant trap because they know that uh, if the Cardassians are developing a weapon that dangerous that the Romulans have even agreed not to develop, that this is serious business. And that's why they probably why they chose this as the trap because it's easiest to say hey this is super dangerous get your highest ranking your best officer out here to come and stop them and i'm i'm thinking the whole time picard would be be way better at a negotiation table he would deal with the cardassians i think a lot better than jellico ever would and so this is the sort of dramatic irony in this is that picard's place should have been at that table but because they set this perfect trap for him he is in the hands of goal madrid who uh, madrid or whatever who is just sadistic i mean this is a cardassian who has been learning torture techniques since he was a child and been teaching his child torture techniques since she was young her his daughter just hangs out in the room where picard is suffering and clearly being having just been tortured all of this stuff and she's just showing her like pet animal to him and um they're chatting like he's not there it's really shows the type of culture amongst the higher ranking Cardassian officers that this is just a norm for them is to just be in the middle of torture of someone it's just insane yeah well and what they're specifically looking for from Picard is the defense capabilities on Minus Corva and that is something that Picard doesn't know 
So, and right away, when they first get Picard, he dangles all night, <laughs> poor guy, and then they are injecting him with truth serum. So, or it's not technically truth serum, but it's something that really re relaxes the nerves and it's like Khan's earworms, you know, <laughs> where it doesn't control his mind, but it forces him to be honest about whatever he's being asked. And so he gives up the information about that wharf and Beverly Crusher were with him. And he just blabs away about everything that he knows about what's going on on the Enterprise. But of course, Picard knows nothing about Minas Corva, and so he doesn't give away that information. And so from me, that's how we know, that that's a sign that Gol Madrid is dumb and is only in it to torture because there's no way Picard is even having the physical ability to hold back that truth from from the goal. There's no way. If you know, if he's giving up people who he really cares about and would die for, like Crusher and Worf and giving up their information, he would definitely have also given up whatever plans that he knew, even Absolutely. if he couldn't even if he couldn't help it. And so this tells me that Gol Madrid I don't think he even thinks that Picard knows this information and he just wants to take the opportunity to torture this guy and see what else he can get out of him, you know? Like, oh, well, maybe we'll get some other secret Federation defense plans off, off of him. And he sees it as an exercise in how he can break someone. He honestly probably is like, oh, this is good. Like, keep, keep my torture training sharp, you know? If I just keep uh, torturing this guy and see if I can break him. Because Picard is not an easy one to crack. Absolutely. Ashlyn, this is so true. I think he he says in the beginning that you will have no sense of identity. I shall fr from this time on call you human and that's it. And when his daughter's in the room, he tells her lies saying that, oh, humans actually don't care for their young and they are quite cruel to uh, their young and all of this. And Picard has a discussion with Gol Madrid about this after he after she leaves and and he the Gol says to Picard that she has been taught that enemies deserve their fate. I have the full quote. Okay, that he yeah, says. thank you. Yeah. yeah, Picard says when children learn to devalue others, they can devalue anyone, including their parents. Mm. And so Picard's also warning him that the more you teach her that everyone else is scum, she will begin to think that even you are scum and yeah. that's going to really backfire on you later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's showing this cycle of misinformation, of just the way that, that Cardassian that, that Cardassia runs their higher government and this uh, is just so sick to me because it's showing that there's like a, a first of all there's a misinformation campaign going on even amongst their own children it's a way to keep them in the dark about the truths of other species to show that the Cardassians are the more dominant species it's probably what they I mean we learn later that the Cardassians teach their kids that Bajorans are scum or that they're lower life forms and all of this horrible stuff and so we just get a glimpse of this from Gol Madrid, but I think it sets up perfectly the villainous intent of the Cardassians for the future. And the gaslighting he does to Picard, the, of course, like we said, the five lights versus the four lights, how he's trying to indoctrinate in him that there are five lights just to get him to, to feel like he's completely going mad and that he's wrong about this. And even 
at one point he says that he will torture Beverly Crusher instead of him. Like he's free to go and he will just torture her instead. And Picard stays because of this. And of course, Beverly, they don't even have her. They don't have Worf or Crusher. They got back to the ship safely. And, but Picard cannot take that risk. He cannot fathom the idea of someone taking his torture in his place, you know? And so that's another way that the Cardassians know how to manipulate people is through using their weakest spots, kind of like you did, you know, with Vash. I mean, it's definitely to a more sadistic level, but it's a similar idea of finding people's weak points. And that's something that the Cardassians do supremely well and something that's very dangerous about them. Totally. Well, and something that really stuck out to me is that even though this guy is the worst, the writers still wrote in a backstory for Gold Madrid that makes you slightly sympathetic to him as a person because he constantly is bringing up how when he was a kid he had no food and he was the one being crushed by his enemies and they were living in poverty and they had nothing to give their children and there was no hope for the future and now ever since the occupation they are doing better and so that's why he wants to continue the occupation because it seems like it's really helped the Cardassians and helped their economy and helped their way of life of course by putting down others and completely yeah. like trying to eradicate another species so yeah it's I thought it was really interesting that Gol Madrid is hung up on the fact that he did not get what he deserved growing up and so now he is hell-bent on taking it and getting what he deserves now and Picard picks up on this immediately because he's Picard master negotiator uh just brilliant mind and yeah he says now when i look at you i won't see you as who you are this big high up general in the cardassian government i will see you as a little boy who's hungry and looking for food and this angers him so much that he actually calls him picard even though he said i was going to call you john he was going to call you human the whole time he uses his name because picard is getting under his skin and is infuriating him and so i just love and I'm just so in, in awe of the fact that Picard can do this, even under these extreme circumstances. He's just amazing. <laughs> I mean, truly, we see him face down some of the most evil beings and still find their weaknesses or find a way out. And yeah, I mean, of course, it's with the help of his friends and it's with the help of people around him who came to, re came to his rescue. But he keeps a cool head and it's just something beautiful to watch because yeah he's just so incredible yeah he says to him you are a pitiable man and throughout his entire process of being tortured he keeps saying i want to see a neutral representative yeah <laughs> so it's like this is calling the for rules. justice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like this is wrong yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, it's such a great episode, such a, uh, brings out so many amazing things in Picard and in Patrick Stewart, probably one of the best acted episodes that we get in The Next Generation. Absolutely. It's time, Rihanna, ah! it's time. We Let are Borg. <laughs> Resistance is futile. We must talk about the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> so this is it. This is our last, our last villain in The Next Generation. And that is the Borg. And we talked about earlier about how they were introduced, about Q breaking the uh, non-existent continuum directive to not show <laughs> lower species about the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> 
but we do and we meet them and we see the cube for the first time and the second time that we encounter the borg is the most fatal that is the best of both worlds part one and two that is the season three finale of next generation one of the best finales of all time yes so historic and in this one they encounter a borg ship on the edge of the alpha quadrant no no They have traveled fast. They came here way too fast. They must have taken a transwarp conduit. Oh, no. Yeah, they probably did. No, they did. Yeah. And they want Picard. They do. They want him to be the, not leader, but the instigator of this, uh, I want this takeover of the Federation, essentially. Not an Instagram takeover, but a a, a species (laughs) takeover. (laughs) An assimilation. Um, I want to say a few things that Q mentioned about the Borg when he first introduced them to to the Enterprise crew. He says that the Borg are users. They aren't preoccupied with occupation, etc. That they are only preoccupied with utilizing the technology that they assimilate, assimilate and utilizing the bodies that they assimilate, essentially. And so this is something really important to keep in mind about the Borg, is that they are not intent on world domination in the sense that we think that they would be they are intent on collecting new information in order to be quote-unquote the greatest species or the highest species and they consider themselves to be such because they assimilate other cultures and they add their likeness to their own (laughs) exactly thank you their likeness to their own and we learn also in Qhu that the borg are born And I was wondering about this because we obviously know that they assimilate species and that is one way that the Borg can grow in numbers. But we also know that there are Borg babies. They're in these chambers, um, baby's chamber, (laughs) and um, that they are a biological life form but infused with technological aspects and so i wondered about this do you think that this is where the borg originated was that they were born with like nanotechnology then put into them by someone like how do you have a theory about this or is it ever said what came first the life form or the drone it's hard to say i have no idea about the origins of the borg i would be surprised if they were babies first though i think that the fastest way for the borg to add to their collective is to assimilate cultures that already exist because it's a lot of work to raise a baby and uh, in any species and especially even if you're controlling them through the drone you have to have the baby like gestate and then they have to grow up and i know they 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 grow up (laughs) they grow up really fast but all of that takes a lot of months to reach full maturity Mm -hmm. and so i think that it's much faster for them if they just assimilate adults and then at that point they have worker bees you know they have drones who can build the ships and build the technology for them and i would think that when they're in sectors where they've already assimilated everyone or are traveling to another sector that's when they say oh let's build let's like make some babies so we can continue to add to the collective yeah i think you're right i think their ultimate goal obviously is to continue to add their likeness you know others likeness to their own and to continue to evolve in a way that um they think is perfection or reaching perfection exactly yeah and what is a interesting turning point is the fact that they want picard because in 
at this point in season three of Next Generation, we do not know anything about a queen or any kind of leader. It seems like they want Picard because humans are going to be hard to assimilate because of their technology, because of their vastness, there's so many, and because the Federation does have advanced technology that could theoretically destroy the Borg. The Borg are not worried about this as much as they should be, but they're still very hesitant. And so they think it would be better if we had a liaison, an ambassador to the humans, um, (laughs) who would make assimilation easier. And I thought this was a very interesting twist because we've never seen them rely on any kind of liaison before. And they never do again. Even the Borg Queen, when we meet her later, is not a liaison to Mm -hmm. any of these other cultures. She's just the one who's in control of them. Yeah, I wondered about this if if they were trying to create a weak spot for the Enterprise, thinking that when they saw Picard as Locutus, they wouldn't fire on the ship, or that they would hesitate, or that they think that Picard would try to convince them to lower their weapon, lower their shields, you know, all of this stuff that maybe they were trying to think, how can we manipulate their weak points and use that to our advantage? Is the only way I can think that that would try to work and like it 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 could have worked if Riker hadn't been so on his toes and decided to fire anyway and all of this stuff there definitely could have been more dire consequences and absolutely were like could have been because they were heading to Terran space they were heading to earth to try to assimilate earth which of course they try again and first contact it's always what they're trying to do because if you can get earth you can pretty much hit at their weakest or hit hit at the spot where everyone's most emotionally and physically vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. Picard, you know, we talked so much about how going up against these villains brings out these different qualities in our heroes. And one of the most moving parts for me, or heartbreaking parts in this episode, is when we see Picard is has been recaptured by the Enterprise and he's lying in sickbay and he's still a, a drone. He's still attached to the collective. So they're trying to figure out how to detach him and we see that he's crying despite Mm. so which shows that despite all of this technology and the board completely controlling his body that there is a little bit of him in there and i think that's a willpower thing because we see have seen so many people get assimilated later and none of them seem to have any resistance towards it and so picard is just so hell-bent on getting back to his ship and surviving through this ordeal that part of him is still resisting this assimilation i mean he told them that i will resist you with every ounce of strength i have and that's what he's doing yeah yeah so ashlyn the ending of this first part where the screen pops up and it shows Picard saying, I am Lacutus of Borg, resistance is futile, all of that stuff, is one of the absolute most successful endings to a, se- a season I've ever, ever encountered. And I can't imagine like being alive during that time, watching it on TV, just absolutely like having your stomach drop out of your body <laughs> watching this scene. I just, oh my God, it's so well done. And I also have read that some that some of the writers considered ending the series here, which would just have been absolutely well devastating. What was happening is that um, one of the writers was actually being fired. And so he, to get his revenge, he wrote the most suspenseful, like, 
episode of he wrote basically the best episode of all time but painted them into a corner that they there was no way you could satisfactorily get out of without killing Patrick Stewart and wow there's no way at that point you can continue the next generation without Patrick Stewart you can't have him become a Borg and have Riker be captain of the Enterprise that it would not work no and so the part two of this is not quite as satisfying dramatically as the first part because Picard, you know, returns to his human form. He doesn't even have, like, a robotic arm. He's, like, totally human and fine. And, yeah, so it was the revenge of a writer getting fired wow, that he Ashlyn. said, you know, what... F you guys. That's like um that's like an evil plan in and of itself. It like, really that's a is. malicious intent. That's really insane. Thank you for that information. I had no idea that was the circumstance. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. I just want to ask you, why do you think Picard can say I when he's Lacutus? Because obviously says I am Lacutus of Borg, and even when he's talking to the Enterprise crew as a Borg, he can say I. And we know from the episode I Borg and from different interactions with the Borg that once you're assimilated you only say we because you're a part of the collective yeah I wondered this too I mean I think writing wise they hadn't really established that we vernacular quite yet to the extent they were going to with I Borg and all of this but I think for a storyline it was another way at attempting to manipulate the Enterprise crew I think that somehow they figured if we can get him to use like first person pronouns and he locutus calls Riker number one and so yeah. I think it's a clear way of manipulating their emotions and I mean they've assimilated enough species to know how emotions work and how people of will course. sacrifice for one another and all of this stuff and I think it is a ploy to get them to lower their defenses yeah that's I, my only I, explanation <laughs> I agree with you and because he's a liaison maybe he's not totally assimilated and because he's still actively resisting right all of that could come into play here yeah I think we should talk a little bit about first contact to wrap this up because this is the next generation's most epic clash with the Borg yeah of course the Borg are trying to assimilate earth they can't do it in present day federation time so they go back in time to when earth was first developing first contact specifically with Zephyr and Cochran and they try to stop that from happening so humanity can't ever have warp drive and they can assimilate them at their weakest point yeah, the Borg clearly did their research for this. They know a time that they would make that would make them most vulnerable to assimilation because they were on the cusp of greatness, but not quite there. And we talked about this a bit and how just decrepit Earth is at this point and how society is really struggling around this time period and that um, the discovery of Warp Drive and with Zephyr Conquerin really kicked them into a new a stage of life and a better way of life. Of course it was slow going but all of that you know accumulated to this uh, to the Federation and so I think you're absolutely right it's their most vulnerable position and it's all all in part to the Borg Queen, I think that of course she's the she's the main mastermind behind this, and she thinks that she once again uses kind of a liaison idea with Data. She decides that hey, I'm gonna go get the Enterprise because clearly they're here. They followed us into the past, and I'm gonna utilize Data to try to get him on my side to do this. Yeah, and Alice Krieg as the Borg Queen 
is fantastic. And I love seeing this matchup of her versus Data. Yeah. Because as we've talked about, he is, he's humanity's liaison. Yeah. <laughs> um, he is trying to be human and she is offering him steps and steps closer to make him human. She tries to give him skin by, or she does give him skin by grafting some onto his arm where she can give him both pain and pleasure. Right. <laughs> and it's interesting to see this matchup of them both. It's showing two very strong characters butting heads. And at one point, we are all, or at least I think all of us were convinced that Data was going to join her because this lore of humanity has been hanging over him for so long and something that he's been desperately wanting that, I mean, Lore uses the same tactics to get him to try to be on his side when he gives him an emotion chip, you know, and Data's been dealing with trying to figure out how his emotion chip works in the movies. So he's at a more vulnerable position of wanting humanity so desperately, even more so than in the series that it's a very smart tactic of her. I mean, she is clearly a mastermind. She knows what she's doing, but she doesn't know Data the way she thinks she does. And that, of course, is her downfall, is assuming that just because she plays to people's vulnerabilities that she can utilize them to come out on top yeah she doesn't understand the depth of the loyalty that data has to the enterprise and to picard Mm -hmm. yeah totally underestimates him yeah well and she doesn't understand picard's undying hatred for the borg and she doesn't understand how far he will go and that is something that we noticed a pattern in skin of evil where he left armis behind on the planet because it was sort of a Um, getting his revenge for Yar's death. And this, I think, uh, this movie is Picard's attempt at revenge against the Borg for his assimilation as Locutus and an attempt to strike a killing blow at the Borg Queen. You know, I mean, obviously we see her come back in Voyager, so she's not going to be gone forever, folks. We're going to talk about her again. Mm -hmm. But this is her... This is her facing off with someone who is so unlike how he would normally act. I think that she assumes she knows Picard because she probably met Locutus in the collective mind, all of that stuff. She thinks she knows him, but he's been changed so dramatically from this assimilation that he will go to much broader lengths to make sure that they are destroyed. Yeah, absolutely. And it is alarming to see Picard so unhinged and so hellbent on revenge because that's not who he is and uh especially when we see the scene where he has the the phaser and he destroys all his ships he destroys the glass that holds up all his uh really nice model ships (laughs) and that I mean that's such a symbol for him because that's exactly what he reveres and he loves the federation and and order and and everything but now I think that he's back in time and that there so there's no starfleet to regulate anything that's going on in this time period and he kind of has permission to do whatever possible to literally stop the borg from taking over earth and so that's that's a huge weight on his shoulders and he has the opportunity to get revenge on what they did to him in best of both worlds so it is just overwhelming for him and he does kind of crack under the pressure a little bit yeah but it ends up you know 
they save Earth and the Borg are destroyed. <laughs> and we, yeah, we see the Queen later, but uh, that's going to be for Voyager. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, I, I think that Picard is really fighting the Borg on two fronts here. One's the mental, emotional struggle. And then one, of course, is the, yeah, the physicality of the Borg and just the danger of them half assimilating the Enterprise before they can be destroyed. So... It's all really thanks to Data and Picard that this even came to fruition because if the Borg had assimilated Earth yet again, we're, we're just saying like it would, none of that would be good and the whole timeline would be erased in favor of the Borg assimilating all of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> not good. Yeah. No, not good. <laughs> so and thanks, Picard and Data. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And Rihanna, I'm so excited because a lot of the villains that we talked about today, we will continue to talk about throughout our podcast villain series. And that is something that we have not done so far on the Dura Sisters podcast. We have some characters like Worf who go, you know, series to series. Yeah. But we have not had a lot of uh, similar themes and characters that span the entire or like multiple series of Star Trek. So yeah. we are going to get even bigger insights into Q, into the Cardassians, into the Borg. And I really hope that you stick around and continue to listen to our discussions about the different facets and how everybody changes as time goes on. Yeah, we are just so, so happy to be doing this series. And we hope you all are having an amazing couple of weeks and thank you for hanging in with us so thank you ashlyn today for meeting up with me to talk about these notorious fantastic and dangerous villains and i cannot wait to discuss deep space nine with you in a couple weeks here i can't wait thank you for listening to the dura sisters podcast please tune in next week for the third episode of our villain series where Ashlyn and Rihanna will discuss the villain episodes in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. Also take a moment to check out our content on Tumblr and TikTok. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review and five stars on Apple Podcasts. By donating any amount per month, you can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, the animated series, and Star Trek trivia. You can find all of this and more at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith. And our outro, Worf's Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire. Well, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm here to ask for your help. I forgot how to make my voice sound like Picard, but I'm old now, so it works. Please call me Will. I need your help.